This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So let me ask you something. Do you have American Home Shield? If you're a homeowner, you better have it. Because when you own a home, you know that it is going to happen. I'm talking about heat going out refrigerators dying, plumbing issues. It can be a mess that few of us have the skills or the extra cash on hand to take on. This is where American Home Shield comes in. They'll help cover the costs to take care of it. And if they can't fix it, they will replace it. Or they'll find another solution for it. To see everything they cover and to save 50 bucks today, go to ahs.com slash ahs.com slash Listen, if American Home Shield cannot repair the covered item, they'll replace it or they'll offer an alternative solution. America's most preferred home warranty, more than 1.8 million customers now. And as the nation's largest provider, they have paid more in home warranty claims than any other company. That's added up to more than $2 billion, with a B in the past five years alone. American Home Shield, be sure with the shield. Limitations and exclusions apply. See plan for details. Listen to your external language. Just start to monitor what you say out loud. And is it the type of language that's predictive of of driving you where you want to be? And if it's not, just stop. I'm not asking you to, to make the language perfect. I'm just stop the negative language. And now what's cracking? Welcome to yet another episode of the original Side Hustle, the Jim Rohn Podcast. Yes, the football season might be over. Yes, we are at the All-Star break in the NBA. Yes, baseball season is still a month away, but somehow this side hustle just keeps going strong. Episode 117 is going to be tremendous because our guest is tremendous. Trevor Moad is the former director of the IMG Performance Institute and the Athletes Performance Institute. He is now the president of Moad Consulting and CEO of Limitless Minds, along with his partner, Seattle Seahawks quarterback, Russell Wilson. Trevor is arguably the preeminent mental conditioning expert in sports today. He's worked with Georgia, Florida State, UCLA, Alabama, the Jacksonville Jaguars, and more. My man's got the credibility and the national championship rings to show for it. He knows what he's talking about. He knows exactly what he's doing. His latest book is called It Takes What It Takes. It is a fascinating read. He's a fascinating guy, and it's going to be a tremendous podcast. It's episode 117 with Trevor Moad, and it's coming at you right now. Trevor, you got a brand new book out. It's called It Takes What It Takes. It's on sale right now. I think it's a fascinating book. In fact, I love the title of the book, It Takes What It Takes. It's really interesting to me. Where did that come from, and exactly what does that mean? You know, it was interesting. I was uh, consulting for the Memphis Grizzlies on the sports psychology side in 2014, and I was having this conversation. Vince Carter, you know, obviously who your audience knows well, uh, was a huge college football fan from Daytona Beach. We were having a conversation about that Florida State team that was uh, Jameis Winston's second year, if you remember that team. Sure. 
we had uh, been to the national championship the year before, and I was the, the, the mental conditioning coach for that team. And, um, and it was a really interesting conversation, and it kind of goes to one of the core elements of the book. But uh, a number of our players at one of the schools I worked at had gotten in trouble, three players in an eight-hour period. And Vince asked me the question, you know, just more about college football. I said, you know, how many of these guys uh, in college football want to play professional football? And I said, probably seven out of ten. And he said, and, you know, and isn't it crazy they think that they could do whatever they want to do and make it to that level? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I had to give up choices a long time ago. Uh, I'm 38 years old, still playing in the NBA. I don't eat fast food anymore. I've got to work out the day of games. I can't have the post-food diets. I don't dunk as much during games because I can't get back as fast. And I said, so, so what do you mean about choice? And I said, you think choice is an illusion? He said, yeah. I said, look, the reality of sports is it takes what it takes. You're either going to do it or, or you're not going to do it. And the conversation kind of always stuck with me. And I was going to see Alabama that next day and kind of shared that with Coach Saban as well, the idea that if you want to be good at anything, there's a path that's set and the choices are finite and it takes what it takes agnostically. That is really interesting. It takes what it takes agnostically. You know, even as a backstory, Trevor, I remember way back in the day when Vince Carter came up and he was winning the dunk contest and he was just so explosive athletically. I literally can remember an NBA coach telling me, and he said it kind of disdainfully. He's like, man, I just don't get this guy. Wince, wince. I'm like, what do you mean wince? He was calling him Wince Carter, and he was talking about his body language, obviously. He's like, watch this guy. He's always looking like he just got stabbed or something, or, or somebody hit him over the head with a two-by-four or whatever. It's amazing that Vince Carter is the guy at 38 who figured that out, right? It takes what it takes. It takes what it takes. Exactly, and, and it's crazy because a simple concept like that, I think whether you understand it, what's allowed you to be exceptional in your profession or other people, you know, uh, the, the concepts that drive success are universal for the most part. I mean, athletics are a physiologically dominated sport uh, or, or industry, so they're going to be different than working at Google. But, but the idea, once you take the judgment out, Jim, like, hey, this is what it takes to be a good tennis player at Santa Barbara. This is what it takes to be a good businessman in you know northern california uh, i'm either going to do it or i'm not but i'm not going to judge what it takes and the whole idea of it it takes what it takes and you have to respect people's right also not to do what it takes but your goal is to educate them enough so at least they know so at a minimum they're an educated derelict all right so trevor all these people then we're talking about and what's interesting is you can make this comparison we're talking about elite athletes but you also mentioned businessmen i know you've worked with special special or military personnel and special services types as well so i mean is there a common thread are they exceptional in aptitude and talent or is it more maybe in their habits and behaviors and mentality yeah you know I got my start, uh, you, you know, I went to school in California at Occidental, and then I was a teacher in L.A. Unified and trying to play pro soccer, and then ultimately I would take a job at 25 years old as a, as a you know, working in the sports psychology industry as a mental conditioning coach at, at IMG, the sports agency's academy in Bradenton. So 500 acres, 1,000 athletes, athletes kind of from all walks of the, the, the world. And, and, you know, early on I'd get exposed to uh, – Cade McNown, why didn't he make it? Tim Couch, why didn't he make it? Patrick Rafter, why did he make it? Uh, Tommy Haas, why did he make it? Michael Johnson, why did he make it? And then you start to be around all these incredible athletes over the course of my, my uh, 12 years there, 
and you start to, to see these common denominators. And then you obviously, uh, 500, 600 guys getting ready for the draft, ultimately to a guy like Russell Wilson, you recognize that sports is going to have Jadavian Clownies, guys that are going to run 4-4s that are going to be 6-6 and 280. But to me, Jim, it's the behavior is so far ahead of the aptitude, it's crazy, and that average people become average through average behavior, not aptitude. And, and your, your aptitude does matter, don't get me wrong, but uh, when you see guys, take Russell Wilson, for example, he doesn't hit the measurements. I've evaluated draft prospects for years, particularly when I worked with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Um, he doesn't fit the metrics we were looking for, but he had a lot of other things that, that were, were really sort of pluses for him, and he maximized what he had and never worried about what he didn't have. And I think the, the real trick in, in my 18 years in, in being probably more so, Jim, around elite people and elite performers and elite organizations is, is the standard they perform to uh, is really what they focus on, not the gifts they have to, to make it to that standard. And Trevor, I could, you and I could talk Russell Wilson for hours on end, and I'll get back to, to that in a minute, but you said a couple of things that kind of triggered me. Number one, I think that probably, like I know your background, you know my background, you know I went to college at UC Santa Barbara. Yep. Uh, what you may not know, though, is that we have something similar in common. I came up through LA Unified School District, at least an elementary school. Yep, so I didn't know that. Okay, so I'm really curious. What high school did you teach at? So I taught at John Marshall High School, in uh, Los Feliz, Silver Lake area, just, you know, kind of off the five, sort of near uh, Dodger Stadium. Okay, I like that. So I grew up on the west side, and I went to Roscommon Road Elementary School before, okay. we moved, before we moved to the Valley, and then I was out of the L.A. Unified School District. Now, another name that you mentioned that really triggered me, and it takes me back because I've done this a long time, Cade McNown used to come on our radio program quite a bit back in the day when he was yep. at UCLA, and I found him to be a really different, fascinating character. When you ran down that list of guys as to why they didn't make it, what happened to Cade McNown? Well, you know, I was younger. Like, with the, the first group that kind of came through that had some of the UCLA guys, as well as not just Cade, but Freddie Mitchell as well. Sure. Um, and, and Freddie became a really close friend. But the stories you kind of heard in the preparation process for the draft, I mean, who you are speaks so loudly I can't hear a word you say. You know, and, and you can watch these guys when they train, when they prepare, and you can't overcome bad habits. And I think um, you can learn to get better at them, that's for sure. But I think kind of from the early origins of that first group that had Cade and Tim Couch and all the things was just the concern was, uh, you know, obviously there were size and other elements or issues, but he was a great player in the Pac-10. Um, so I think the, the bigger things were, would he do all the things you need to do to be a great quarterback in the league? All right, so for instance, Trevor, can you, if aptitude is not the end all, can you be of really average, like, aptitude, talent, IQ, whatever it is, and still overcome and be great? And if so, how do you do that? How does an average person become great? Well, and it's, it's interesting. I think the best thing for me was just all the case studies of asking so many athletes. I mean, I was willing to pick guys up at the airport, do whatever I needed to do. And probably, Jim, the, the one that I learned the most from, and I talk about it quite a bit in the book, is Michael Johnson, uh, the great Olympic gold medalist who in 96 wore the gold shoes. Uh, you know, imagine getting a bronze medal wearing gold shoes. Hmm. And, and he really articulated, I think, kind of what you're talking about. First of all, when you break down success into its subcomponents, 
So for Michael, let's say running a 400 meter or 200 meter, it was head down, pump my arms, explode, drive my legs up, keep my toes up, you know, these different elements and these different things. And then the, the training, you know, Michael's belief was you had the speed that you had. Like you, you were given speed and it was up to you to, to figure out how much of it you were going to use or not use. And, and so to me, I think the better combination is when you have elite potential combined with elite behavior. But I think the understanding of the behavior allows you to overcome so many other people's human nature. I think it's a really good combination. What I would say in business, I think the behavior overcomes the aptitude. I would say in sports, your aptitude still, like take Freddie Adu, for example. Freddie Adu, uh, I love Freddie. He was one of my favorites, and he was a great pressure player, but he could never really overcome his own behavior. And for those of you who are listening in your audience, he was sort of the next great Pele coming out of the U.S. in the early 2000s. But teams were always going to take a risk on him because he had so much ability. Trevor, what and, kind and, and so the ability matters, and I think it gives you a lot more opportunity for margin for error. But I think uh, if you don't have a margin for error, but your behaviors are always on point, you have a really good chance to make it. And there's a lot of guys in pro football, pro baseball, pro basketball who are making it in, you know, with marginal ability. I think that's a great message for everybody. But go back to Freddie Adu for a minute. Like, what kind of behavior was he unable to overcome? You know, it was it was interesting because I'd never had an example. My career sort of rose with his. My opportunity to be on outside the lines. My opportunity, in, you know, to to sort of do a lot of things. Is and then my job, you know, was to help sort of mentor him and put him around. I was, you know, I had him around Eli Manning early on. Uh, uh, Anquan Bolden, Michael Johnson, a lot of these different people, because U.S. soccer was such a, I don't know, kind of had a poor man's complex. It, it, it didn't know how to nurture a star, and you know, I felt like he needed to learn, you know, things from more traditional athletes than, than the average MLS soccer player. Um, Freddie just really struggled, I think, just to do simple better. You know, Jim, like I'm talking about stretching, I'm talking about sleeping, I'm talking about hydrating. Just all those basic things, if you put him in a structure where he did it, he was great. Um, you know, and, and when you put him in a weight room, he would work hard, but getting him to the weight room sometimes took time. And uh, it was just, I, I've always found, I don't know your opinion, but those athletes that don't have any problem doing the basics, you know, have a chance to uh, uh, really, really drive, uh, have a better chance to sustain success. And Freddie really struggled with that. No, I, I, I see exactly what you're saying, Trevor. And you talk about this in the book. I mean, a lot of it comes down to just taking the simple and doing it extremely well, right? Taking the simple and the fundamentals and dominating. How big a difference can that make to anybody? Well, I, I think about one of my you know close friends who who was the COO of NASCAR and ran president of IMG, who you know had a thing where he made uh, ten outgoing business calls a week, you know, and he would make thirty a month. And he, he's done that for his whole career, and he's 50. And, and, you know, now he runs a, you know, one of the, he just sold on location to the NFL. You know, and, and you sit there and you think, that's something that's so basic. But you've got to find 10 outgoing calls. You've got to find all these new people to talk to each week. And whether it's in business or whether it's mastering, and, and this kind of goes back to it takes what it takes. It takes foam rolling. It takes sleep. It takes hydration. It takes recovery. It takes a psychological game plan. It takes a physical. It takes coaching. You know, so I think when you're mastering that, and it's no different, and that's where I think your behavior matters, Jim, because 
if, if, you know, I get up in the morning, and so I live in Manhattan Beach now, just moved from Scottsdale, you know, uh, I have a program that I'm, I'm getting up at 6, and I'm driving up to Palos Verdes, and I'm going to do this hike, and, and that hike is happening whether I want to or not, and then about halfway through the hike, I'll want to. But, but I mandate the behavior, then the feelings catch up. And I think that that's what I've noticed Alabama, Florida State, now what we're doing at Georgia, um, when the behaviors were, were required prerequisites that players accepted without judgment, uh, we ended up performing. And I don't think it's any different if it's, you know, Russell and I have a company called Limitless Minds, and Johnson & Johnson and some of the top Fortune 500 companies we're with, they're no different. If they don't do simple better, they're not going to win either. I think we're talking process. I think we're talking discipline. And you hear, and, and Trevor, I talk to coaches every single day of my life, and they constantly, I, I can't have a conversation with a coach on any level that doesn't talk about process and culture. And then, which brings me to this, in, like, in your experience as a mental conditioning expert, do what do most athletes and coaches think about this notion of mental conditioning? Like, are they really hungry for it? Are they eager for it? Do they understand it? Or, or maybe do they think, you know what, if that guy's weak, we will weed him out and find somebody else who can do it. Yeah, I mean, it, that's, a, that's a great question. What I would tell you, Jim, is 18 years ago, 19 years ago, mental conditioning was the future of sports. And 19 years later, it's still the future of sports. <laughs> which right. means it never really had a present. I, I, I think the way an NFL team looks at it is it's the player's responsibility to get themselves right. And you and I both know there's an infinite, infinite supply of talent. So if you can't make the standard, they just get rid of you. Uh, I think where I've been able to survive in this industry is taking a look at, at sports psychology probably differently. What I've seen over the years is, is it's not uh, trying to be positive that's the real challenge. Players... Their number one struggle is negativity, and all we really focus on is learning how to get rid of negativity. And negativity is carried most pervasively by your language. When I'm, when I'm complaining, when I'm talking about the heat, when I'm saying what we say in the book, stupid things out loud. And when I learn how to just minimize the negativity, what I'm watching, my, my Twitter feed, what I'm listening to, I'm not talking about do anything hard but just minimize those elements, minimize what I say out loud, and minimize the negativity, it gives me a much better opportunity to succeed. But what I think is that the self-help industry's never been able to get out of its own way. I mean, you know, my dad was one of the first authors in Chicken Soup for the Soul, Jim, so I've grown up in this my whole life, and the message has always been a little touchy-feely, the power of positive thinking, how do we meditate, those aren't things that I teach or talk about, but that's all you think about when you hear about this industry. So I think there's two things that have sort of stunted it. A, there's no reason for coaches to employ it because they, they believe, they don't think about making great players greater. Um, they, they, they hope the great players just sustain that standard. That's where I think a Nick Saban's different. Uh, and then I think the second thing is the industry of, self-help and sports psychology and life coaching and all those things has never really found a stable way to describe it. And so usually in positive thinking, so anecdotal, you don't know if it works. But what I found out that does work, and the Mayo Clinic proves it, is negative thinking does work. So it's, it's, it's kind of, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's just been an industry that's really struggled to find a way to label itself. All right, so it makes sense to me. 
but I know what you're teaching. But let me put this in the form of a question so people listening understand exactly what you're saying. What's more critical, Trevor, in your mind, to be more positive or to be less negative? To be, to be less negative, and it's not even close. If you were never positive, Jim, if you were never positive but learned how to be less negative, it would change people's lives. And, it, and, and, and what we found is negativity is almost a multiple of four to seven times more powerful than positivity. And that just goes back to hard wiring. You know, and, and I learned a lot of this by trial and error and what messages are going to work with SEC athletes or not. Um, and then when we verbalize negativity, uh, it, it's a carrier by a factor of ten. So when I'm speaking negative things out loud, I'm increasing the influence that they could happen to me by 40 to 70 times. All right, so saying it out loud is even worse than thinking it. Let me ask you this then. Is neutral thinking more important than positive thinking? I, I believe so. And, and, and the way I thought about it always was like a car, you know, that a car can't go from backwards to forwards without going to neutral, finding this middle ground. But the idea of neutral, which I think resonates with, will resonate with you, and it certainly has resonated with our athletes, positive thinking so many times implies that we have to bring something happen. So, so take Russell through the NFC Championship in, in 2015 when, when he's thrown four interceptions and he's, and he's two for nine with one completion and he's halfway through the third quarter. You, like, you've got to own that. Like, you're not playing well. But you also have to own the fact that there's six minutes left and what you did the first three and a half quarters while you own it is completely independent and free from the next six minutes. So the idea of neutral is the past is real, but it's not predictive. What happens next is based upon what I do next, not how I feel. And it, it's, look, it's, it's what we've been teaching sort of deep in the world of sports. It, it doesn't have a brand. Uh, hopefully this book is kind of taking it publicly, but I think if you learned how to be neutral, which is I'm just going to focus on, um, you know, when we get out, uh, playing quickly, playing with great balance, you know, going back to simple behaviors and then see where I'm at with five minutes to go, you know, as opposed to focusing. So, and, and positive thinking always requires us to, hey, you know what, we had a bad first half of the year or that divorce was tough. This next thing is going to be better. Well, you don't know if it's going to be better. But you also don't know that it's going to be worse. And, and it's going to be based largely upon what you do. So learning how to be a neutral thinker, I think, is something that is strategic and it makes uh, – there's no debate. If, any, if you read my book or you followed me, there's really nothing I say that's debatable. It's all pretty common sense. It's just a matter of, um, you know, you just – a lot of people haven't heard it the way we've been talking about it at places like Alabama, Florida, State, or Georgia. No, I think you're right. Now, listen, I accept everything you've said so far. I see the results. I think Russell Wilson, to me, is one of the most fascinating athletes I've ever seen and watched. I want to ask you this, Trevor, and I want you to help me with this, because I would ask you this in this format. I would ask you this if I were in your office. I've always been one of those people, and I've read a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, and even going back to when your father was like kind of a pioneer in this kind of thing. So I know what you're saying. My thing is neutral, and I'm not I'm not even judging this. I just want your help with this. Neutral would suggest to me, 
like more passive, whereas I've always been of the school like you need to attack, you need to be aggressive, you need to impose your will, you need to dictate the situation and not let it dictate to you. I think you know what I'm getting at. Why yeah. is neutral better than all of that? Because I know you're aggressive in a different way. It's not that you're not aggressive, but why should I be neutral instead of attacking, or am I attacking in a different type of way? Well, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, based upon the way a car is when you're in neutral, it is a completely passive state. So I think it's really all in how you define it. And my mindset was, um, let's take Brady. They're down 28-3. Okay, now Brady's in a neutral headspace. Tom Brady at that point, uh, you know, uh, four minutes into the third quarter. Now, by staying neutral, he's not outcome-focused, but that has nothing to do with his intensity. A lot of times some of the Asian definitions about being neutral are more this, this state in the middle where you're sort of in between positive and negative, and, uh, you know, or you're at this emotionless state. That's not what we're talking about. So we're talking about emotion high, intensity high, but the focus is on what you're going to do as opposed to the outcome you're going to get. So Brady looks at that sideline and says, how about we start competing? How about we start showing some fight? How about we play with our pad level lower when he's talking? You know, that, to me, is an incredible neutral thinker who's not thinking about the end of the fourth quarter or what's just happened, but what we can do now to influence what happens next. So... Uh, but the, the term neutral is not a perfect term for it outside of just the way we wanted to use it to help our players understand it. The idea of being neutral was, was it's in the middle of positive and negative. Where, look, we're not asking you to be positive. We're asking you to accept the past, but we're also asking you to focus on your influence. And the idea of shifting from neutral into forward is, is this, this behavior that you can focus on. So it, 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 it's a great word to trigger to our guys to, 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 to calm down and focus on the next moment. Uh, but it may not be the ultimate, you know, uh, the word that describes exactly the state of being perfectly, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. No, you're right. I think what we're talking about, right, correct me if I'm wrong, you're trying to eliminate the noise. You're trying to eliminate the clutter. You're trying to eliminate your mind running off a of muck, right? You're trying to be clear-minded. You're, you're being clear-minded by just minimizing your negative language, by minimizing your negative consumption, um, and, then, and then really putting your, like, by owning what just happened, dang, I got three picks, still in the game, all right, how do I play better? I think that that's, you know, I think that that's an element that is, is in your control, whether you call it a process orientation or a task orientation, to me being a neutral thinker, uh, and I use the example in the book from Jim Lovell, Jim Lovell, uh, who, who captained Apollo 13, when, when the ship blew up, the limb blew up, you know, a positive mentality about, hey, we're going to find a way to get back to Earth, that wasn't going to help. A negative one certainly wasn't going to help. The next step, how do we move these three guys to this next ship? How do we orbit? Can we still land on the moon? All those elements, and those are things I share with our coaching staff as we go through this idea of staying neutral in big moments. I'm at the I'm at the Rose Bowl with Kirby Smart. We're playing uh, Baker Mayfield a couple of years ago. We're down big in the first half. We've been kind of teaching the idea of staying neutral. That each half has a history and a life of its own. Um, and you know, I, I kind of know the words sort of made up in my mind. But Kirby, I'm back with him in the coach's office in between halftime, and 
And he looked at me and he said, man, I'm having a really difficult time staying neutral right now, but I do know that the first half and second half are two separate parts. I just got to figure out how to differentiate so they don't look exactly the same. And that, to me, in my mind was when I knew we really had something powerful here, but because of thinking of the term neutral, he could differentiate what he needed to do to get them ready to live those halves independently. All right. So, Trevor, it's all great in theory, although you've tested a lot of this, but to put this into practice, here's a great example. So when Russ is on the verge of winning a second Super Bowl and he's about to punch it in against the Patriots and then throws that pick and they don't finish, that's that's really negative. So now we're talking about consumption we're talking about the noise that could stick to somebody forever it didn't stick to Russ forever I want to know what the process was how did you turn that negative into something neutral what was your process and how did you approach that going forward well first of all the 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 moment was huge right uh and and I don't know that people know it exactly but um the final two minutes of the, the 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 Patriots Seahawks Super Bowl 123 million people were watching, which was 13 million more than, than MASH, and it was the most televised moment in the history of the U.S. And so to throw an interception at a moment like that, I think there was kind of multiple parts. Number one, Russell, uh, between that moment happening, walking to the stage, he did what he could do in that moment, which was basically say, it's my fault. The ball was in my hands. It's my fault. He managed that moment really, really well. We saw Cam struggle with a similar type uh, not situation, but a similar type uh, scenario with his press conference a year later, and he hasn't really recovered from that press conference. So, A, Russell managed the press conference well, and then, like, there's nothing you could say, Jim, so after a moment like that, you just have to, when you're with an athlete or you're involved, and obviously, you know, my significant other and I were at the game, um, the moment's real. So if, if failure's real or if the mistakes are real or, or, or if when you, you lose, it's real, like that, there was nothing you could say that was positive. It was just a matter of how he was going to get through that. Now, 10 days after the Super Bowl, he sent me a text message that said, I need to hit the reset button and make this the best offseason ever. Well, what was the next thing in our control? And you know after that last CBA, the NFL offseason is a long time, and players have to really manage it well and get out of their own way. So I said, so he said, I said, I'm on it, and then my job was to put a plan together for him to have the best offseason ever and to manage it and spend a lot of time with him. So we went down to San Diego. We, we, we rented a house. We found him a, a great place. We interviewed a bunch of trainers. We found the best trainer for him. We trained three times a day. He ultimately started to get involved with Freddie Roach. And, you know, we added boxing, all sorts of different elements, and had the best offseason he could have um, that he'd ever had. And then ultimately that was what we controlled. We started the season. He threw 30, 34 touchdowns, I think seven picks, and had the best, best season of his career. All right, so what do you do when you're craving protein and you need more energy? We're all faced with that. Don't grab a bar. Do not get a sugary snack. Do not smash another energy drink. Go for the beef. Pure and simple. So where's the beef? It's in a package of Old Trapper beef jerky. Old Trapper is not your old man's jerky. It's not shriveled. It's not dry. It doesn't taste terrible. In fact, it tastes amazing. 
Old Trapper beef jerky is made from lean strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a real wood fire. That's why it's amazing and tender and tasty. And Old Trapper is a 50-year-old family business known for their relentless commitment to quality. They take their smoked beef extremely seriously, so you can taste it in every last bite. Old Trapper's packed with protein. It comes in four great flavors to satisfy all your cravings. Quality smoked meat at its finest, you can take with you wherever you go. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, be sure to ask for it by name because no other jerky ever can compare. Old Trapper, what's your beef? I love Love Freddie Roach. He's always been one of my favorite guys, Trevor. I understand where Russ might benefit from boxing training. What do you think about Freddie Roach? What do you know about him, and what do you think about him? Yeah, you know, you know just the times I, I had the opportunity to be around him, um, you know, I mean, just, you know, obviously he's incredible in terms of how he's dealt with it, you know, from his own career and from, from, from what he's battling with. But I just think he's, he's a coach who's consciously competent, man. He's really good at what he does, and he knows why. And he's got a great way about how he deals with athletes, just a, a great sense of humility. So, I, you know, I think, look, the commonality amongst boxing, baseball, basketball, football, again, going back to what we talked about originally, uh, takes what it takes. And I think Freddie does what it takes, regardless of his circumstances, to be one of the best uh, at what he does. And I don't think we've ever seen anyone quite like him in the world of coaching, period. This book is called It Takes What It Takes. Trevor, let me ask you, like Russell, when you met Russell even at the Combine, he was already doing a number of these things and then went next level when the two of you became friends and business partners, et cetera. So when he says to you, I need to hit reset, he's already an elite thinker with elite habits. I could see where he could hit reset. Let me ask you this. If you're just somebody listening right now and you're just ordinary, you're in business, you're just anybody in any normal walk of life, and if all of our behaviors kind of shape us or form us and you get to a certain point in your life, say you're in your 40s and you're a product of all these choices and all these behaviors, but you've decided enough is enough. Can you just hit reset and then change yourself dramatically and quickly or is that just not realistic? Well, I don't think the change for us was dramatic or quick. I think he knew that by hitting the reset meant, you know, the, the, the series of choices that were made next were going to be huge. You know, like we, we left Seattle for a couple of reasons. Number one, there weren't enough blue sky days, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And he, I felt like he needed to be among a higher volume of blue sky days overcoming something like this. And I factored those things in, Jim. And then I think, you know, secondly, it was, it was Seattle can't get over this moment. So let's get out. Let's get away from you know talk radio and KJR and all the different shows and the different things. And let's put yourself in an environment that's exciting. And then Southern California, we were in Manhattan Beach the year earlier, but San Diego was a little older community, and we wanted to live in an area that was going to be you know less distractions. So if I'm 40s and I'm, I'm, I'm a worker and, and I need to hit the reset button, the the way to do it is kind of twofold, in my opinion. So number one, it's a matter of looking at what I'm doing now and then making a decision of if I did this differently, would this give me – I'm not choosing to do it yet, but if I did it, would it give me a chance for a better path? Let's say in my marriage, the, you know, there's some statistics that say the average married couple communicates directly 27 minutes a week. And my friends laugh like, they're like, that much? Like, where do I find all that time? Which <laughs> wow. Is, you know, obviously, but, but if that is the case, then making more time than 27 minutes 
is is got to be the first goal, and then you have to figure out how to do it. Then you have to decide whether or not you're going to do it. So making a decision to behave differently is number one. I think the second thing is is if I'm driving on 405 or 110 or 101, um, you know, a lot of times, Jim, you'll see the speed limit. It says 65 miles per hour. Well, uh, Greg Wooden, who's John Wooden's grandson, who, who was hugely involved in the California Highway Patrol, I remember hearing a conversation at one point when I was at IMG, we were involved with the Wooden family, and we were talking about those digital signs that they ultimately would put on top of speed signs. Remember those? Sure. You, know, you see them quite often? Yep. You know, and, and they're being the Montecitos or the nicer communities, but they're there. When you see that digital sign, it has a huge impact, way more so than just seeing the speed limit, because what it's actually telling you is, what speed are you going? What are you doing? What's the truth about your reality right now? And I think for many of us, we need people in our lives that's called a feedback loop scientifically that can give us that feedback that say, hey, Jim, you're going 88 right now. You need to slow down. Or, hey, you can speed up. You're actually, you're actually going 53, and it's a 65. You can go 70. And so sometimes that's where teammates are really important. That's where coaches, that's where leadership that's where mentors are really important to, to being that digital sign for us that sometimes can hold us accountability or can hold us accountable to our own to our own gifts and potential or to the behavior change. Hey, you said you wanted to have a better relationship. You said you wanted to spend more time. Have you segmented the time to make sure you do it? I think of Nick Saban every morning, 6 to 6.30, he watches the weather um, and then watches the news with uh, Miss Terry, his wife, and that's, you know, he's segmenting 180 to 250 minutes a week where they've created the behavior that's going to allow them to get off to a start as a married couple really well each day, even though he has to work significant hours. And then he smashes a couple of Debbie cakes. Yes, and that's where he has his little Debbies. Exactly. You know what I'm talking about. Yep, yep. And so how much of this, though, I, I get that. So you've got people around you holding you accountable, but how much of that is just self-accountability, Trevor? For instance, like how often do we t- – I know you have the data on this. How often do we talk to ourselves, and generally what are those conversations like, and what kind of an impact do they have? Well, you know, the, the data suggests somewhere between 800 to 1,400 words a minute, uh, and it could be thousands of things we say to ourselves – inside our mind, not out loud. And, and I always ask people, you know, do you ever find yourself talking to yourself and half the hands go up and half of them don't? And I say the ones that don't, you know, right now you're asking yourself, do I talk to myself as you talk to yourself? And, and we're constantly having this conversation. This is what I found out, and this is being with these guys the night before national championships, sitting, sitting down in the team room, watching video, kind of putting our, our psychological plan together. Those internal words... It's okay if they're all over the place. Nobody really has those down perfectly. And that's what kind of what meditation, some of those things go after. How do I change what I'm saying in my mind? It's not very powerful, Jim, actually. So, and a lot of times, for a lot of people, it's negative. It's what we say out loud that, that really reinforces it, that makes it real. So, um, you know, Bill Buckner, the, the, the great baseball player um, who passed away recently, is remembered for his uh, in 1986, he lets the game-winning run score on a ground ball through his legs versus the Mets, which ultimately, you know, would give the Mets the World Series. Now, what people don't know is, is 12 days before that World Series starts, he does an interview and says, I don't want to be the guy to let the game-winning run score on a ground ball through my leg. Mm. 
right? So he, by externalizing he that, he literally articulated probability. it. Right, I'm sorry. He, he literally articulated it. He didn't just he literally think it, articulated he said it. it. He literally articulated it. And, and, and that, to me, is if people could just manage what they said out loud, that's where Russell's incredible. You'll never hear Russell saying negative things out loud, but he's not a Pollyanna. You know, so he just really minimizes negativity, what we watch, what we consume, what we listen to, um, you know, all those things, uh, what, music, you know, I mean, look, if you're going to be great, it takes intentionality. So who controls what you listen to in your car? You do. Who controls who you call on the phone? You do. Who controls what you say out loud? You do. And if, you know, if I'm down with Jordan Palmer getting guys ready for the draft and we have these young guys, you know, what they consume on the Internet in advance of the draft is really powerful, too, because what has influence over you in many parts is whatever you give influence over you. You know, you're talking about cons- consumption, Trevor. Like I used to ask, I don't anymore as much because I know the answer, but I would say to coaches, what in terms of social media, what is your greater concern? That your one of your guys might thumb out something derogatory and it might come back to bite you, or are you more concerned about what they're reading and what they're consuming? So when you're with young athletes getting ready for the combine, for instance, what is your advice to them in terms of consumption and the use of social media and what they are reading? Well, what we do is I just show them countless examples of athletes who've said the wrong things out loud, who've consumed the wrong things, who've allowed themselves to consume too much negativity and the net impact on them, which has been bad. And I want them to understand, look, I'm going to respect your right to consume whatever it is that you want. If Mel Kuyper says this or Todd McShay says that or Jason Lockenfora says that, you know, or Adam Schefter says that, but at the end of the day, um, if you think about you only have so much bandwidth to influence yourself, what's going to really influence you? So if you say, I'm going to take an hour a day and I want to watch this just to get up to speed, that might be great. And that might be okay, and that's what you do. And, and you want to have some fun with it and enjoy it. You don't want to lock yourself in, in a jail cell, but at the same point, what really matters? You know, and that's getting back to your neutral behavior. If I'm training right and I'm doing all the things I need to do, then I open the door to do some of those things. And watch some of that stuff, great. I just probably need to minimize it. So really quickly, Trevor, what do you make of guys? like? And it's the rare athlete, but you see it sometimes. Some of these guys run on like crazy fuel, like negativity, like like Steve Smith. I'm, just, I'm so amazed at just the grit and the passion and the fire. Some of these guys can't get enough of that negativity, and they store it all, and they remember it all. Do you just kind of let those guys do that because it works for them, or would you discourage that? Well, look, I mean, to me – to me, my platform's always been, look, I'm going to educate to everybody. And then the, the guys that it resonates with, like the message is universal and it's going to resonate, whether it's a major league team, an NBA team, college team, a business, whatever it is for Limitless Minds or whatever we're working on. But you have to respect people's right to do whatever they want to do. Zach Thomas was a great example. When I started with the Dolphins, I loved Zach. And Zach was incredible, but Zach would find – some blog in Lubbock, Texas, 13 years into the NFL that was still doubting him. And we, I remember Zach and I sitting down just having a long conversation saying, the simple fact of the matter is you're really good. You've already, had, you've already made eight Pro Bowls. So you don't need that to drive you. Your own success and desire to lead the league in tackling and desire to play well, that should be driving you now, not other people's doubt. And we had a really good conversation about that. And and that resonated with him, and ultimately in 2006, he led the league in tackles. 
You know, and, and, and so I don't think if negativity is 40 to 70 times more powerful and it's debilitating, then we want to be careful of the consumption because we might think it's helping us, but we haven't really looked at the alternative well enough. And to just look at our politics now. I mean, it's what's driving our narrative just by turning it off and not overly engaging. Some of these military units I work at, Jim, they teach the guys how to consume. This is, this is cable news. This is who they're marketing to. This is this network. This is that network. So you learn how to watch it responsibly. All I want players to do from the mental conditioning perspective is know the basic fundamentals of thinking. This is how my, my mind works. This is what happens when I say it out loud. Uh, this is how the internal thoughts work. This is the power of negativity. If I focus on, uh, you know, the basics about what I need to do, it's going to work just like if I write down a list of eight things and I go into Safeway, I buy them, and I come home. Can I do simple better? And I think that's the real focus that we're trying to get these athletes and these business people to adhere to. It makes sense to me. So a final thought then, Trevor, in terms of business people or just like normal uh, average people, if somebody is listening, and we did touch on this, but if somebody is listening and they're just not satisfied with being ordinary or being average, what are a couple of critical things that they can focus on immediately to enhance or improve performance? Great question. I think, number one, listen to your external language. Just start to monitor what you say out loud, and is it the type of language that's predictive of, of driving you where you want to be? And if it's not, just stop. I'm not asking you to, to make the language perfect. I'm just stop the negative language. I think probably the second thing is, you know, uh, this idea of conscious competency. When I work with the Jaguars, we used to talk about this with Coach Coughlin. What is it that drives success in what it is you want to do? Whether it's running, whether it's business, whether it's parenting, whether whatever it is, what are those? Break that down to the subcomponents. Uh, break that down into subcomponents, and then identify where am I at relative to doing those things. And I, and I think probably the third thing, um, you know, I think the third thing is ultimately, you know, just it, having a plan. You know, think about what it is that you want to do, and then ask yourself the question, why am I not there right now, and, and, and what's standing between me and getting there? And just really some basics and start writing down kind of what I want, what it looks like to get it. But I'm not asking you to, to go on top of a mountain and meditate. You know, I'm, I'm asking you to listen to your language and, and, and really think about have you, have you broken success down uh, or studied it from other people in your office that are getting it that have what you don't have. Um, and this isn't about money. This is really about, about maximizing the gifts. And I think my last point, Jim, would be use what you have. A lot of times the world measures us by who we're not. Russell, you're not 6'3". You, you don't have this speed. You don't have that. Where Russell Wilson's focus is always using what he does have. So if, if I'm 5'11 and I went to Occidental College and these are the gifts I have, I'm responsible for using those gifts. I recognize I may not be Tony Robbins. I may not be other things to other people, but i got to use the gifts that I have. And I think that that's what you see the best teams are maximizing that best LSU or that best Alabama or that the Gauchos in a particular season, they're using what they have based on the talent they have. Am I using what I have right now? And I think that's a great question for uh, the clones or for anybody, you know, really throughout your audience to listen to. 
Trevor, in other words, it's self-actualization, right? Play the hand you're dealt. How many people are getting near full, reaching near full potential, getting nearly 100% out of what they have? Instead of spending all our time thinking about what we don't have, we're not yep. big enough, we're not strong enough, we're not smart enough. Yeah, but you're not even playing with, you're not even at 70% of your own capacity. Is that not what you're talking about? That's exactly what I'm talking about, you know, Jim. And I think the other point I would make is think about what you could not do right now that might help you what I could not watch, what I could not consume, who I could not hang out with, who I could not call. Sometimes the things we're willing not to do make the biggest changes in our lives as well, and they get us closer to that element of self-actualization, which is just, just, just you know, winning today relative to myself. But it starts with that reset, which is basically, you know, if I don't have what I want, um, then I'm accountable for why I don't have it. But if I want it, I am going forward is going to be determined by what I do today, not what I did six days ago. In other words, it's simple. It's just not easy. Correct. And Trevor, one last thought. You've said this. This resonated with me. You, what you've said is you don't want to be one year down the road and wish that you did not start today, correct? Yes. I mean, that. My, my favorite statement is a year from now, you might wish you started today. Right. And And, and so if I'm listening to this, you know, because to me, I think the concepts that you and I have just been talking about for 45 minutes are a lot less about Russell Wilson and great athletes and Michael Phelps and, and uh, you know, Mia Hamm and, and those types of people, and really more about choices and decisions. And, and if you, if you want to be good, you don't really have choices and decisions. You're either going to do it or, or you're not going to do it. So I think that this is the point. If, if, if I'm listening to this and it's February – 18th or 19th, and I, I want something different, or if I'm already really good, Jim, and I want to add more, because you don't need to be sick to get better, so if, if I'm already really good, but, but how, if I want more, am I willing to, to give a little bit more? Or can I get more by doing a little bit less and being more strategic? All right, so you've got all these concepts in the book and, of course, lots of stories. Look, I could have easily, Trevor, just sat here and said, hey, story, 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 story <laughs> with all the work, and we can do that next time. But I yep. think a lot of people listening, it's hard for them. They love the anecdotes, but I think they want real practical information that right. they can put into work. So there's all of that and more. The book is called It Takes What It Takes. It's on sale right now. Wherever you find books, wherever they're sold, Trevor, it's so good for you to spend that much time with us and for the podcast. I really do appreciate that, and we should definitely do that more often. No, I look forward to it. As I heard Mark Pope say, also from Seattle, where I'm from, uh, it's a pleasure, man. A lot of us uh, real big fans of you, Jim. Appreciate everything that you've been doing. I'd love to come on anytime. Clones, I want to tell you about a brand new proposition, and I like this one a lot. I want to talk to you about root insurance. Here's what I like about this. Let me start you off with a question. What if good drivers did not have to pay for bad drivers? Root Insurance knows this. They think the old way of pricing car insurance is not right. It's not fair. So Root developed a mobile app that measures driving behavior. By removing bad drivers from the equation, Root saved good drivers up to 52% in 2019. So gone are the days where your car insurance rate is based on your credit score, your age, your gender, your zip code. With Root, it's car insurance made easy. Using an app to base rates primarily on how you drive. Better drivers do deserve better rates. That's why the Root app uses driving behavior as the primary factor to determine car insurance rates. 
And in 2019, Root was the fastest-growing direct insurance company in the United States. All you have to do to take advantage of this is download the Root Insurance app. Drive normally for a few weeks during the Root test drive and then see how much money you can save. Don't wait. Give Root a try. Head to your app store, download the Root Insurance app, and sign up in less than a minute and start your test drive today. That's R-O-O-T. Again, download the Root app right now or visit joinroot.com and learn more and see how much money you can save. It's not available in all states. Disclaimers may apply. Visit joinroot.com for deets. Huge thanks to Trevor Moad for some serious time well spent on that podcast. That was awesome. I hope you all got something out of that. And again, this is the very reason why this podcast exists, to change up, to have long-form conversations, to do different things that we certainly could not do on our daily broadcasts. And this is not the first time and it will not be the last, which is a great reason why you want to subscribe and an even better reason to go back and listen to some previous episodes. I've got comedians, murder mystery reporters, Navy SEALs, actors, Hall of Famers all over the back catalog. We cover everything. Check that out. Out, make sure to subscribe so you never miss a future conversation. Remember, once you subscribe, this will find you every single week. You don't need to look for it. That's the pitch. Now go ahead and act on it. We're back next week with EP 118. But until then, here are your voicemails. First new message. Jim Rome, Andy Parrish calling from Wisconsin. I love your love affair with my state and just let us know when you're coming next and we'll make sure you have a real Wisconsin experience. By the way, it was minus 25 here this morning, so you got to get out here in the wintertime. Thanks. Bye. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Jim. Ben in Montana here. Hey, long-time listener. Just want to say congrats on the Hall of Fame, man. Uh, I know I'm a little late to the party in saying that, but you got me through some hard times. I broke my neck in October. Man, just like listen to your show every day. Helped get me through some hard times, gave me some laughs. And just want to say I appreciate the grind. Appreciate the pod. I appreciate you pushing that out every week. Message saved. Next message. My name is Dane, and I like sandwiches. Message deleted. Next message. Romy, JJ from Huntington Beach. I've been wanting to tell you about an experience I had with Corvette Guy. Pulls up to my local bar, beautiful Corvette, pearl white, baby blue interior. He steps out of his car with his gloves on, fingerless gloves, and he's rocking his pool stick case to go into my local bar. This guy looks like Tom Petty. It was amazing. Corvette guy to the max. Message saved. Next message. Jim Rome, this is Mark currently in Chicago. I'm calling about this Houston thing, this science dealing scandal. I'm just happy that you know, they didn't call it some kind of gate. I'm so sick of everything being called gate in the media. Spy gate, freaking whatever else, kind of gate, deflate gate, all that stupid stuff. So over it. Message deleted. Next message. Sorry, Rome. Tony in Youngstown, and I'm sure the announcement next week for Tour Stop isn't going to be Youngstown, but I damn sure want it to be. We'll bring Trestle, we'll bring Boom Boom, we'll bring Pavlik, we'll bring whoever the hell else, Ed O'Neill, some Youngstown legends. There's a few. We'll get you here. Message deleted. Next message. What are the chances you can get Matt in Van? and Rick in Buffalo to throw down at the tour stop celebrity boxing style with either sumo suits or the big boxing gloves or whatever it takes. But this I got to see. Rick would tear that little twerp's head off. Yo. 
Message deleted. You have no more messages. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 